In Greek mythology, there's this famous story about a master craftsman named Daedalus and his son, Icarus. In it, Daedalus builds a labyrinth for King Minos of Crete to imprison the Minotaur, a half-man, half-bull monster. Unfortunately, under some tenuous familial circumstances, both Daedalus and Icarus are imprisoned in the labyrinth as well. Seeking an escape, Daedalus fashions two pairs of wings out of feathers and beeswax, and as they are preparing to leave the island, warns Icarus not to fly too close to the sun, nor too close to the sea. But once they were in the air, Icarus became dazzled by the experience of flight, and flew with his eyes closed. He was intoxicated with his newfound sense of freedom, soaring and piercing through the clouds, only to soon realize that the sun was melting the wax in his wings, sending him spiraling to a watery grave. In some sense, you could say that this is a story about balance, or maybe even about filial piety and the respect for one's parents. The most common interpretation, however, is that this is a story about ambition, about what happens when you aim too high and fly too close to the sun. You're tuning in to the Economical Rice Podcast. Welcome to part two of the Olivia Lam and High Flux story, The Fall. In 2010, Olivia Lam and High Flux were at the peak of their powers, a culmination of the decades of blood, sweat, and tears that we covered in part one of this story. During that year, High Flux recorded $569 million in revenue and $88.5 million in profit, its highest ever since the water treatment company first started out roughly 20 years ago. Bolstered by their incredible achievements, the company would attain a tantalizing market value of 2.1 billion Sing dollars, and Olivia Lam, who had significant stake in the form of stock and options, had a net worth that was easily in the hundreds of millions. It was no wonder then that in the company's annual report, Lam would state emphatically that it had been another record year for the company. But what was also interesting about the annual report was that it clearly foreshadowed the seeds of their future troubles. On page 4 under the segment titled Significant Events, the first item read, Hyflux was named preferred bidder for Singapore's second and largest seawater desalination plant by PUB, the National Water Agency. I'm joined here by Sam Ong, who's the Group Deputy CEO at Hyflux. Sam, thanks for joining me here today. Thank you very much. Welcome to Singapore. Thank you. It's a pleasure being back here. So, uh, Sam, it's always a busy week for Hyflux this week, and uh, you had your big inauguration of the Tuas uh, desalination plant, the second 
here in Singapore. Give us some details about sort of uh, the news on this and, and what this means for Highflux. Well, we are honoured to have the opportunity to uh, build Singapore's second desalination plant. It is uh, Singapore's largest and arguably it could be uh, Asia's largest by the time we built it um, in two years' time. Um, and uh, we are happy to be able to serve uh, the uh, Singapore uh, with uh, uh, not just uh, the building of the plant, uh, but to be here making the membranes that produces the water right here in Singapore. Seems pretty innocuous, doesn't it? I mean, the company had been building desalination plants all around the world at that point, including Singapore's first, Singspring, which is opened in 2005. So surely, this must have been a piece of cake, right? But fast forward 8 years to 2018, however, and suddenly, the mood is completely different. Will a white knight come to the rescue of the beleaguered water treatment firm? Well, observers say this is a strong possibility, even as Highflux is in talks with 29 potential financiers to, for rescue funding to the tune of 200 million Singapore dollars. In the company's latest annual report for the fiscal year 2017, Olivia Lam opened her message with the following, quote, 2017 was marked with challenges. The global economy continued to show subdued growth, with depressed oil prices and few good infrastructure projects available for tender, end quote. The bitter irony here is that Lam could have opened with the same line she used in 2010. Technically speaking, this was indeed another record year. For not only did Highflux record their highest year-on-year -year drop in revenue by a whopping 57%, 2017 also marked the biggest and only annual loss the company has ever had since publicly listing on the Singapore Exchange in 2001. A loss amounting in the staggering region of 116 million Sing dollars. Following this news, the company's market value tanked, falling from the peak of 2.1 billion in 2010 to just 120 million dollars today effectively wiping out 94% over the course of 8 years. If the value of your company is supposed to indicate the health of your business, then Highflux today is pretty damn close to flatlining. But what has this got to do with the Tuas desalination plant? Well, as it turns out, quite a fair bit. You see, out of the 116 million in losses that Highflux recorded in 2017, a full 81.9 million of it, or approximately 70%, was due to operational losses at Tua Spring, 
the name given to the Tuas desalination plant project that started all those years ago. If you recall, the profit that Highflux recorded back at their peak in 2010 was 88.5 million. So to have a single entity contribute nearly all of that amount in losses is really saying something. So the question then begs, why this one? Out of the dozens of ventures that Olivia Lam and Highflux have engaged in, why has Tua Spring in particular failed so horribly? Well, the main thing to note here about this project is that it's not exactly in the same vein as the others that Highflux have done in the past. Where their previous plans have focused purely on desalination, which is the process of making seawater drinkable, Tua Spring was slated from the beginning to be an IWPP, an integrated water and power project. Some more details on uh, High Flux's bid for the Tuas uh, desalination plant and is Singapore's first IWPP contract. Give us a few more details on, on how that came about and, and how it's really unique for this part of the country. Well, it's unique because of uh, the uh, contractual obligations and uh, risk allocation that uh, a builder like High Flux will have to undertake, especially on the energy side, uh, that is not passed through. Uh, it is um, uh, a uh, first IWPP in Singapore, as you have mentioned, and it is uh, IWPP that sells both uh, the excess power uh, outside of the captive use, as well as the desalinated water. And true to Samong's words, Tua Spring would boast a production capacity of 318.5 thousand cubic meters of desalinated water per day, whilst also encompassing a combined cycle power plant with an installed daily capacity of 411 megawatts of electricity. At its time, it was an engineering feat that was unlike any other seen before in Singapore a true testament to the incessant innovation and technological expertise borne by Olivia Lam and the Highflux team. But from the very beginning, the main intention behind the design was to generate power in-house for the desalination plant, then sell any excess power to the national energy market. In other words, this was very much a feat of business economics as well. I think the overall, re overall results uh, uh, is to make sure that uh, this integrated design of uh, both uh, water and power is benefiting water. And this is also one of the first few concepts that uh, we are uh, uh, conceptualizing. And uh, in essence, we are staying true to what Hyflux is about, making water more affordable. Hindsight, that last sentence from Sam Ong takes on a very tragic tone. For behind the veneer of all the engineering and design brilliance of Tua Spring lay the pride and overambition of Olivia Lam. As Christopher Gasson, 
Managing Director of the trade publication Global Water Intelligence Shares, Tua Spring was never meant to be Hyflux's project, but rather for one of Singapore's main power generators such as Keppel or Semcorp, as these entities had enough slack in their power generating capacity to produce water at the lowest cost. Gessen would then continue with this remarkable anecdote, writing that, quote, Lam, however, was not prepared to take no for an answer. She locked herself up with consultants for six months to learn about the electricity market and developed a proposal to build her own power plant. It would be profitable because the Singapore electricity market was set up to favor new entrants selling into the grid to meet peak demand, she argued. It inspired her to deliver what seemed to be an impossibly low bid of 35 cents per meter cube for the project in February 2011. Keppel's best price was 52 cents per meter cube, and all the other bidders came in at more than $1 per meter cube. PUB had no option but to award the project to Hyflux, but Lam's victory sowed the seeds of her ultimate defeat. End quote. Gasson's writing implies here is that Hyflux, a company that had no prior experience in the energy market, basically tried to undercut the industry's biggest players. And to contextualize the gravity of the situation here, this is pretty much like if a hawker stall owner suddenly decided to open a full-scale French bistro but at hawker stall prices. I mean, to some extent, having an ambition and taking action on it is admirable. But doing so without understanding your own limitations is a recipe for disaster. In the case of Olivia Lam, while she undoubtedly had the expertise and know-how to pull off the job, the low prices at which she agreed to sell water to PUB meant that there was barely any margin for error. Similar to how she first expanded her business into China, this was again terribly naive and incredibly rash. Sad to say then, that things didn't pan out as well as it did before. And when the energy market authority opened up the industry to new players in recent years, this introduced a greater supply of energy in Singapore, leading to lower electricity prices and thus lower revenue for Tua Springs power business. This, as it turns out, would be the death knell for the IWPP, wiping out any measly margin of profit that he had hoped to produce and leading to the record losses of 81.9 million in 2000. In 17. Olivia Lum, just like Icarus, flew with her eyes closed 
reached for the sun and was sent spiraling to her demise. If that was all there is to the story, then really I wouldn't be too bothered about it. In fact, in an efficient economy, bad decisions should be punished, and the actors making those decisions should be made to bear all the costs. I mean, it only seems fair, right? But reality is often far from the ideal. And the tragic fall of Olivia Lam in High Flux becomes all the worse, given that various stakeholders, investors, and creditors make up its convoluted funding structure. These are the other people who would bear the consequences of Lam's bad decisions with Tua Spring, and I think it's worth examining. I think it's time to follow the cash. In any business, cash is a vital part of operations, which makes funding that cash all the more important. But this is where things can get very complicated, for there is a veritable buffet of funding options to choose from, each of its own unique conditions and specifications. For instance, you could borrow money from your friends, family, or the local bank. You could get them to invest in your business in exchange for equity, or you could go looking for other investors such as venture capitalists or even listing on the stock market. In any case, what's in it for the company is that they receive cash to expand or fund their business, and for the people who put up the money, well, that depends on what kind of funding deal was arranged. In the case of High Flux, the company is funded by a variety of backers. There is the early group of ten angel investors from Olivia Lam's venture into China. There is individual and retail investors holding public shares. There is this group of investors holding this oddball instrument known as perpetual securities, and then there is others like company directors and Olivia Lam herself. But that list makes up just the equity side of Highflux's funding structure, and in total, they've contributed almost one billion dollars to the company. On the debt side, Highflux has a staggering 1.5 billion dollars worth of liabilities spread into four general categories: 
long-term secured bank loans, long-term unsecured bank loans, short-term unsecured notes, and short-term unsecured loans. And so, as you can see from how Hyflux is funded, it is not just the company and Olivia Lam alone that will suffer if it goes under. That whole list of backers I've just mentioned, from bankers to directors to fund houses to even your friendly investment savvy coffee shop auntie or uncle, they are the ones who stand to lose as well. And perhaps this is always the case when you're dealing with people's savings or futures, and this could also explain why much of the news surrounding Hyflux's problems have focused on this point of funding. I mean, we're talking about retirement funds here, college money, wedding expenses, or grandchildren's inheritance. Of course people are going to get riled up and anxious, for a lot of them have much to lose, and they're desperate to know how much the Tua Spring Nightmare is going to hurt them. But before we get into that, I think we need to address the elephant in the room. And if you've been following the trail of cash so far, you would have noticed that there's about $2.5 billion worth of funding that has gone into high flux. The question then begs, where is it all going to? Olivia, uh, I'm Michael Koy, you know me, I'm, I'm a professor of chemical engineering in NUS. Uh, I've known you for a long time and when we were both in Membranes and I was in DuPont. Uh, I was very impressed that you as a small company made the transition up the value chain into being an EPC. That's engineering, procurement and construction, a type of business model. Which meant, really meant that you were outside what uh, the traditional companies would call their core strength. So just for an example, I was in DuPont in Membranes. When we had the chance, this is DuPont now, a big company, to move up the value chain to value added to being an EPC and that time with national power in the UK, even DuPont chickened out. The point I want to ask you is, when you had to get out from such a severe uh, comfort zone from being a membrane company to now being an EPC where you're building plants. What gave you the guts? Now, if I were less dignified, I would have asked you, what gave you the gonads <laughs> to move into an EPC? Thank you. Okay. Uh, well, where appropriate questions? In fact, <laughs> in fact, uh, I, you know, when I run a, a company, when I first started a business, I always wanted to do big. Also, I, I like to dream big. You know, you don't dream big, uh, you know. There's no fun in running a small company all the time. And when you want to do something, you, you, you meet with a lot of obstacles when you're small. When you're bigger, you have less obstacle. When you're very big, you can decide on your own fate. So, I 
look at being an equipment or membrane supplier as a very limited way of doing business because you have to, uh, you, you are at the mercy of the EPC company. You're subcon. You're not even subcon, you're sub subcon. <laughs> you know? So you're very small in the value chain. So can you imagine that to sell your thing, you've got to go through so many levels. So I, want, I decided one day that I'm going to control my own fate. So I make sure that I will advance myself into EPC. So now I become the owner. So I do PPP project where I only have one customer. I don't have multiple customers. I deal only one customer, which is the government. I do not want to be sub, 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 sub. Mm -hmm. So I deal directly with the government. I say I will invest my money to build this whole plan. So this is called build, own, operate, and transfer. Did you catch that? That's another type of business model, an extension of the EPC, more commonly referred to as DBOO, or design, build, own, and operate. So I, I'm now involved in many, many build, own, operate plant. The way to get the financing, after becoming an EPC, you've got the experience. And you've got to have a certain breakthrough. So the first PPP project was the Sing Spring Desalination Plant, which cost me about $200 million when the company was only $50 million. And anyway, I already told you, eventually they were so convinced because when you come to investment, I dare to invest my whole wealth into it. So everybody should be convinced that with such a commitment and with such a track record, I should be given a chance. I love that clip. As well as the question that the NUS chemical engineering professor asked, there's just so much contained in that short three to four minutes about how Hyflux runs their business and why Olivia Lam has decided to pursue such a track. So, in case you're still wondering where the cash goes, well, for the most part, towards construction and towards the assets that they've built and maintained through their projects. With an EPC business model, the company will pump hundreds of millions of dollars into a project, building up the plant, buying resources, paying for the staff, etc, etc, and will likely only receive the full payout from a project after it's done and handed over to the client in a few years. While these projects have really, really huge margins, the cash flow turnover is pretty slow, especially when you compare it to other high-volume businesses such as a supermarket or a restaurant. However, with the design, build, own, and operate model that Lam has now positioned the company in, Hyflux will be committing the same hundreds of millions of dollars, but their payout will be mainly from selling whatever commodity the plant produces. In Tua Springs' case, this will be the agreed-upon sale of desalinated water to PUB, plus whatever they can get from selling excess power. And since the concession period of the deal is from 2013 to 2038, that's an extremely lengthy period of time to keep such an enormous amount of capital. 
And when you consider the short-term payments that the company has to make, such as salaries, research and development, or operating expenses, as well as any interest or principal payments on the loans that they've taken up, this kind of business model really symbolizes the sort of all-in attitude that Olivia Lam embodies. I mean, there's barely any breathing room here. It's like living life on a steel beam hoisted 100 meters in the air. No 50-50 chances, no hedging your bets. It's either do or die, go big or go home. So yeah, given what we know about Hyflux's business, it shouldn't be surprising that they were inevitably going to run into some severe cash flow problems. In fact, this is why the company is now seeking roughly $200 million in rescue financing, as heard in the news clip that was played earlier in the episode. And if you look at their balance sheet for 2017, you can see that they have about $850 million in short-term liabilities, aka payments that are due in 12 months or less, while they only have about $315 million in cash, and another $300 million in short-term assets. And if you thought that was bad, Hyflux has actually been posting negative operating cash flows since 2010. So really, with such a perilous business scenario, it's any wonder that they've even continued on for so long. And don't mistake me here, it's not so much that Olivia Lam and Hyflux were incapable of running their business, but more of the fact that they've stretched themselves so thin in their pursuit of business expansion that they were eventually bound to break. And in 2018, they came pretty damn close. With hundreds of millions due in loan repayments and expenses, Hyflux finally admitted the severity of their cash crunch and called upon Singaporean courts for protection against creditors, while the company undergoes a debt reorganization process. It is a messy, torrid, and uncertain affair for anyone who's caught in this Hyflux freefall. From lenders, customers, suppliers, and least of all to the shareholders, whose stocks are pretty much now worthless and who can't even cash out since trading of the shares was suspended in May of 2018. And let's not forget about the broader implications of this. Singapore, as you know, is not resource-rich when it comes to potable drinking water, and Hyflux's desalination plants play a key role in filling up about 30-40% to 40 of total demand. Can you imagine what would happen if the company went under? And amidst the backdrop of Malaysia's Dr. Mahathir striking up a fuss about the price at which they sell water to Singapore, and not to mention how PUB has already raised water prices by 30% this year, what's going to happen to our country's water security? How much further could this fallout spread if things do really turn for the worse? For the moment, a lot of these concerns will hinge on the outcome of Hyflux's debt reorganization 
as well as how much they can get for selling off capital-heavy assets such as Tua Spring. While Olivia La may be facing the toughest challenge of her career yet, she remains resolute, patient, and hopeful. For the investors, creditors, and even Singaporeans nervously awaiting their fate, much will be made clear in the following months, be it through painful loss or unbridled relief. And if Singapore's water princess somehow manages to survive the fall, I hope that she can use this experience to reshape her view on life. I mean, she's already spent decades as this larger-than-life lady boss, grinding and hustling and bringing water and doing so much good to so many parts of the world that she's nearly ruined all that she has built as well as destroyed the faith that so many people have put in her. It's almost crazy to say that even this brilliant engineer and entrepreneur who suffered and succeeded at so much in life really needs to take a step back and reevaluate her focus. She's already done so much for the world, for Singapore, for the clean water that we take for granted, that it'd be an absolute shame to see her ruined by her own blinding ambition. And I may just be some fresh grad in his second year out of school, and I may not know all the facts or all the motivations behind what Olivia Lam is doing, or I could just be, you know, terribly naive, but I think I speak for a lot of people in saying that I really hope, I really, really do hope, that there's going to be a happy ending out of this. That's it for this two-part feature. The rise and fall story of Olivia Lam and High Flux is indeed a remarkable journey, and documenting it for this podcast has truly been an enlightening yet exhausting experience. We've learned so much about what it means to grow up poor, to grind and hustle through school and life, to take drastic leaps of faith in pursuit of a dream, but also how it can all go terribly wrong. For the dreamers and entrepreneurs, this should be a humbling lesson, one that shows the consequences of naivete and overambition, and that no matter how much of an expert you think you are, it's good practice to know your boundaries. For budding investors, take this story as a reminder of the importance of due diligence of learning to look for the signs of trouble, and then acting to make sure you don't get caught in such a mess. And for everyone else, I hope that this can serve as an exercise in empathy, of stepping in the shoes of Singapore's fabled water princess and taking her for all the humanity that she has to offer. Her brilliance and her determination, her flaws and her overambition, 
and by doing so, you might find that you have more in common with the best among us than you might think, and that really, you're not all that different from an Elon Musk, a Bill Gates, or our very own Olivia Lam. Thank you for tuning in to this special two-part feature of the Economical Rice Podcast. If you like what you hear, do help by sharing this episode to your friends and family, or by subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Music for this episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions and Stacks. If you're interested, these are linked in the show notes on the website, along with all the other research materials used. And if you have any feedback or questions, do reach out by leaving a comment or by dropping a message on social media. This has been your host, Danny, at the Economical Rice Podcast, where over here, we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism. Capitalism.